This is Jamda on the go. Your review of the content featured in Jamda, the research-focused monthly journal of Amda, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Jamda on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Jamda on the Go for May 2022. I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg, your host for this podcast and an associate editor of Jamda. Today, we'll be talking about four fascinating topics that are discussed in the May issue of JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. We'll cover screening for sepsis in older persons, families as essential caregivers in the nursing home, long-term care residents younger than 65, and the value of the surprise question in establishing patient prognosis. Before we start, I to share with any of our listeners who aren't already aware of this, the announcement that JAMDA's amazing co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Phil Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, are going to be stepping down from their role at the end of 2022, which we're very sad about. Uh, but along with thanking Phil and Cheryl for their remarkable work in elevating the quality, visibility, and credibility of JAMDA in their five years at the helm, I want to mention that the search for a new editor-in-chief is still underway. So if any of our listeners are interested in considering that position, please contact us as soon as possible via the AMDA or JAM websites. Or if you know someone who might be a good candidate, we really want to finalize our short list soon. So in any event, uh, today we'll be speaking as usual with JAMDA co-editor-in-chief, Dr. Philip Sloan, and associate editor, Dr. Mallory Brown. Welcome, Dr. Sloan and Brown. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here, Carl. Thank you, Carl. So today, our first topic is the diagnosis of sepsis a thorny issue, especially in the nursing home. And in this area, you know, what the meaning of STAT is, is very different from what it is in the acute care hospital. So Dr. Sloan, what guidance does this month's JAMDA provide on this critical area of geriatric and long-term care medicine? Well, Carl, let me start by reminding us that, as we know, sepsis is a major cause of morbidity and mortality in older persons particularly in older persons with multiple chronic conditions, including folks in long-term care settings. In an ideal world, we would detect incipient sepsis and prevent the organ system damage and increase mortality risk that is associated with full-blown sepsis. The challenge, of course, is how to screen for and identify sepsis early. A study my group published several years ago is the only study directly from nursing home data. It found that common screening criteria have a rather modest ability to pick up early sepsis and that the 100-100-100 criterion performed best of the tools we tested with a rather unimpressive sensitivity of 28% at 12 to 72 hours before hospital transfer for sepsis, improving to 79% in the 12 hours before transfer and a specificity of about 70%. New information is coming out from other settings, particularly emergency departments and um, hospital inpatient services. And these provide additional help as we think about standards and policies for clinical practice. 
One such paper is published in this month's JAMDA from a geriatrics hospital service in Italy. They studied 230 patients with high risk for sepsis, meaning they had one or more of the following kind of risk factors. Age greater than 75, diabetes, long-term corticosteroid therapy, other immunosuppressive or antineoplastic drug treatment, surgery or other invasive procedure in the previous six weeks, any breach of skin integrity, such as pressure ulcers, and or indwelling lines or catheters. They studied three screening tools. One was a quick sofa or Q-sofa, which was popular several years ago, but has fallen out of favor lately because as my study and this study both showed, it doesn't actually perform well as a screening test for sepsis, mm. which by the way is not how it was designed anyway. It was designed to develop prognosis right. rather than screening. Uh, they also looked at the National Early Warning Score or NEWS, N-E-W-S, and the Modified Early Warning Score or MUWS, M-E-W-S, both of which were originally developed to detect rapid deterioration and have more recently been applied to screening. All three of these measures are simple clinical tests you know, with criteria such as the vital signs that were available um, in a very rudimentary patient assessment. And you can find them on the app that's available free called mdcalc.com, both the Muse, the News, and I believe the QSOFA. So, well, sadly, this study also failed to find a gold standard. The QSOFA cutoff that they used had a sensitivity of 82% and a specificity of 67%. And the news and the muse were slightly worse than the QSOFA. So what to do then is really the question. You know, here the authors suggested that a QSOFA consistently under two, their cutoff would help rule out sepsis. And they encouraged going beyond that to look at other measures, particularly the 100, 100, 100 criterion, which I should probably mention what it is because it seems to have the best of relatively poor performance characteristics. Yeah, please. Essentially, yeah, what that is, is, you know, if the temperature is 100 degrees or greater, if the pulse is 100 or greater, or if the, or if the systolic blood pressure is 100 or less, any one of those constitutes a positive screen. That's simple. Yeah. Easy to remember. <laughs> I like it. Staff can understand that. So practically speaking, the best approach includes listening to staff report a condition, a change in condition for a patient. That's the first thing. And then for patients with a change of condition, apply and use every four to six hours a simple screen, such as the 100, 100, 100 criteria. And then if the person screens positive, and here's one of the tricky ones, have a clinician actually set eyes on the patient either personally or by telemedicine, and then follow up that patient very regularly. You know, if sepsis risk is high, you know, get blood cultures, give fluids, and then consider on an ongoing basis whether to monitor the patient or to give antibiotics, send the emergency department, or to send without giving antibiotics. But the decision-making has to be ongoing once the person is identified as at high risk. Now, of course, decisions as to whether to send a patient to the hospital and how aggressively to treat suspected sepsis need to consider the resident's overall condition, prognosis, and goals of care. So goals of care should be reviewed as soon as you are concerned about a change of status. 
Finally, infections without syphilis can be treated in the nursing home, but as a recent symposium I participated in at AGS concluded, most nursing homes are not the place to treat sepsis, only to identify and assess risk. Wow. Well, that is a lot to digest. So, so thank you for uh, that comprehensive review. And I, I agree with you that um, you know a hospital is better equipped to uh, address sepsis in a nursing home, especially if somebody crashes and goes into shock. You know, we don't have pressers and you know, we don't uh, put in central lines and A lines and things like that at the nursing home. Uh, but certainly for some people, especially if we catch it early. Uh, if we can avoid a trip to the hospital, that's uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, I think the, the biggest barrier is lack of you know ready labs. Like, how many nurses come can get a lactate back in a, in an hour? Right, right. It's going to be four to six hours probably at best for most of our most of our facilities. So, well, great. Our next topic is an area that came to the forefront during the COVID nineteen associated lockdown in nursing homes and assisted living communities, other types of long term congregate settings. And that is the fact that many family members are an essential member of the care team and provide actual direct care to the residents. So the question is, now that facilities are open again and unlikely to ever be shut down again in the way they were, how can we better integrate family members into the long-term care setting? Dr. Brown, please tell us what you can about this topic. Absolutely. For me, at least, the pandemic has highlighted and underlined the amazing role that essential caregivers play in our long-term care facilities. We first covered this topic back in the JAMDA on the Go podcast in 2020, when I talked about a letter to the editor that urged us all to acknowledge the essential role that family members play as caregivers in long-term care. In that incredibly uncertain time, Dr. Jeff Schlotteker reminded us Compassion, as well as optimal geriatrics care, requires that family members be allowed at the bedside of their loved ones, and not only in the final hours of life. Amen. The initial blanket statement that visitors were not permitted to enter our facilities may have protected our residents from disease, but it did not protect them from the incredible losses that they can suffer without contact with their essential caregivers. It quickly came to light that a difference exists between general visitors and visitors who come in and provide care. General visitors provide non-essential services or visits for social reasons, but essential visitors, on the other hand, provide direct care that's deemed essential by the resident. Those essential visitors, in addition to direct care, provide social stimulation and meaningful connection and continuity. As a result of blanket visitor restrictions, there were negative impacts on our residents' cognitive, mental, and physical function. This included increased rates of depression, social isolation, loneliness, and behavioral disturbances. Fortunately, our society and each of us acknowledged this gap in care pretty quickly and pushed for change. Policies were developed to allow essential caregivers back into the facilities. However, they varied widely as they have largely relied on expert opinion. This review article in this month's JAMDA examined the strategies used to reintegrate essential caregivers into the long-term care setting with a focus on principles of equity, diversity, and inclusion. The authors reviewed five electronic databases looking for literature that used policy guidance or an intervention to reintegrate essential caregivers into long-term care facilities. In total, 15 documents meant the inclusion and exclusion criteria all of which focused on the context of COVID-19. 
Notable differences existed in the work found, including the definition of essential caregivers, the degree to which essential caregivers are recognized for their role in the care of the resident, the degree to which reintegrating essential caregivers into the long-term care setting is prioritized, amongst other variations. As this review only identified two primary research studies, the authors provided promising practices based on a comparison of the different expert opinion group strategies to reintegrate essential caregivers into the long-term care setting. These include, and they're paraphrased, first, essential caregivers must be differentiated from other visitors and recognized for their essential role in providing care to residents and contributing positively to the physical, mental, and social well-being of residents. Second, Essential caregivers should be recognized meaningfully as partners in providing high-quality, resident-centered care. Third, essential caregivers must be welcomed into the long-term care setting in the least restrictive manner possible, including when there is community spread of COVID-19 and during an outbreak or if a resident is symptomatic. Fourth, principles of equity, diversity, and inclusion should each be an important guiding principle when implementing any policy or strategy to reintegrate essential caregivers into the long-term care setting. Resident diversity and the role of essential caregivers are important considerations with which to provide both culturally safe and appropriate care. Fifth, any approach to reintegrate essential caregivers into the long-term care setting should include a clear and transparent appeal process where any concern could be rapidly responded to and addressed. And sixth, There is an urgent need for primary research evidence to better inform policies concerning essential caregivers in long-term care homes. It's clear from the rapid review here that more research is needed to understand the efficacy of policies and guidelines to reintegrate essential caregivers into the long-term care setting. Until such evidence is available, expert opinion will drive best care practices but I'd suggest we'll want to think, be thinking more and more about this as it's hard to predict when the next public health crisis will hit. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, I, I do think essential caregivers, uh, differentiating them is a good idea. And uh, there might be some outcry. I know sometimes uh, some of the um, oh, consumer advocacy groups and so on uh, are critical of uh nursing homes sort of expecting family members to provide care that, that the facility should be providing. But I think most of our residents certainly would rather have a family member do things like assist them with feeding, let's say, or, or you know, bringing in home cooked food and, and things of that nature, uh, or even, even incontinent care, uh, probably a, a family member uh, rather than a, a stranger uh, caregiver. So Uh, Thank you for that topic. Uh, Dr. Sloan, Dr. Brown, any other comments on that? Okay. Well, our next topic also focuses on sort of an emerging area of nursing home care, and that is the younger residents, those younger than, uh, than 65 years old. Surprisingly, while older persons are the fastest growing demographic in our overall population, the proportion of nursing home residents who are younger than 65 has been actually increasing even more in our care settings. So that's also in line with my experience and it can create problems in the sort of milieu that we try to foster. So AMDA has had a clinical practice guideline and I think the original version 
was chaired by Dr. Rebecca Farini more than 10 years ago uh, about caring for the younger long-term care residents. And that's a very useful resource. But Dr. Sloan, why is this happening? What does it mean for nursing home care? And what are some of the strategies our listeners might consider to sort of address this trend of the younger residents? Well, Carl, let me start out by um, talking about this particular study, because it does shed some light, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the population in general. This is an ambitious analysis of data from over 14,000 U.S. nursing homes using three large public databases. Um, and um, what they found was a significant increase in the proportion of residents younger than 65 in the states that expanded Medicaid with the relative increase ranging from 2.7 to 6.3%, depending on the state, when compared with the non-expansion states. And this change happened rapidly within seven months after Medicaid expansion. So the question is, well, was that a good thing, bad thing? What, why was this? So when they dug deeper, the investigators found that in the expansion states, hospitals were discharging more patients to nursing homes and that nursing home patient turnover rates increased. So nursing homes were being used more and home health care less post-hospitalization. Now, what this means in terms of overall quality and costs is unclear, you know, because nursing home post-acute care costs more, but home-based care results in higher rehospitalization rates. Hmm. So um, thinking bro more broadly about what this means in terms of nursing home medicine, we need to understand that this is just one aspect of a long-standing trend toward more persons under 65 residing in nursing homes. Indeed, a 2017 article documented that the proportion of nursing home residents aged 65 and younger had tripled in the prior two decades. And these individuals differ from typical older residents in having double the rates of severe mental illness, um, paralysis, things like quadriplegia, and five times the rates of traumatic brain injury than older residents. So it's kind of remarkable, even though the population is aging, the nursing home population is growing under 65. Hmm. Um, more work needs to be done to better understand this population as they have important differences from older persons. For example, mental health challenges associated with chronic disability at a relatively young age are particularly intense. Um, I've seen some other observations that really don't relate to this um, paper having to do with people with massive obesity needing more long-term care services. I'm not sure they necessarily end up in nursing homes, although I've seen a few. Um, Dr. Brown and Steinberg, um, what observations have you made about this population and what issue do you think are distinctive about their care needs? Yeah, Phil. So I've definitely observed, and I feel a little embarrassed to admit a little like bias on this topic, but there are specific challenges in general uh, with this population. And I don't, I don't want to say every single person under 65, but uh, a lot of them, at least in my experience, uh, seem to come from difficult psychosocial backgrounds. Uh, some of them may have been in correctional institutions or, or unhoused, and they can have socialization problems. Uh, some of them really know how to kind of work the system. And I've personally seen some of these younger residents be abusive, uh, threatening, uh, you know, overtly aggressive physically with staff and much worse than that, you know, to our traditional frail elder population. And, and that's uh, something I really can't stand seeing, you know, this sort of bullying and 
um, intimidation that occurs. And um, so I think setting limits to the extent that's possible is one strategy uh, and having consequences for behavior that's disturbing to others. But um, I honestly would feel better if there were a separate sort of a care setting for people, you know, that were similar to each other where they, you know, they would not be potentially impacting the quality of life of our traditional population. I don't know, Dr. Brown, anything, any comments? I'll just, I think you're on the right track here. Um, I, I myself can't imagine living in a facility like this as a young person. And so I can't imagine the frustration and difficulty that it brings for someone who is not receiving the socialization they might otherwise as a 40, 50, or even young 60 year old. And so I do think that that's a really interesting idea to create facilities and spaces and places where our traditional nursing home resident live versus um, some of these younger folks. Yes. And, and uh, I'm sure many of our listeners uh, share these experiences and concerns. And I do think uh, when we talk about funding um, Medicaid waivers and allowing uh, people like this who don't require a lot of really medical assistance, but mostly ADL assistance could easily be housed in a lower level of care, like, you know, residential six bed group home type type places. So I hope that uh, as time goes by, we can come up with some some viable solutions that, that really serve everybody. So anyway, our last topic for today is research on the surprise question. And we've all heard about it, right? Uh, asking ourselves, uh, would you be surprised if your patient were to die within the next six months or 12 months or, or what have you? And it's been surprising uh, that this has actually turned out to be perhaps a better tool than some much more scientific and clinical tools as far as uh, estimating prognosis. But how good is it really? So Dr. Brown, uh, what did this article teach us about this? Would I be surprised if this patient died in the next 12 months? Um, this question is a standardized tool that's been used to identify patients at high risk of death who might benefit from palliative care services. In theory, it's great. Prior studies have reviewed its performance, though, and in, in predicting death with poor to modest performance. This particular study, though, took a closer look at a topic that hasn't necessarily been investigated closely, the validity of the surprise question in a population of older hospitalized patients. The authors combined the responses of both doctors and nurses during the patient's hospitalization and found that two no responses to that surprise question were associated with an 8.8 .8 times higher likelihood of dying in that 12-month time period to follow. Adding age to the situation increased the likelihood even further. So it does appear that combining the surprise question scores of physicians and nurses and adding age appears to be a promising step toward identifying older hospitalized patients in their last year of life. The study did not support prior work that doctors were more accurate than nurses in recognizing patients in their last year of life, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, well, really no surprise, right? <laughs> Not the best doctors or anything. <laughs> it did show that surprise, the surprise question can be used as a first step to identifying older hospitalized patients in their last year of life, which is important for timely initiation of palliative care. However, as the surprise question cannot be used as the only criterion for determining prognosis, 
The authors urge for future studies that focus on a combination of feasible instruments, including this surprise question. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And I, I you know, I work with National Pulse, and I think one of the criteria for whether a person really should be offered a Pulse form is the surprise question. Would you be surprised if they died in the next one to two years, along with a lot of other more specific clinical criteria? Uh, any other comments about that? All right. Well, not surprisingly, we've discussed four topics and uh, we're ready to wrap it up. So uh, thank you for listening to our podcast. And under the leadership of co-editors-in-chief, Drs. Philip Sloan and Cheryl Zimmerman, and with the support of associate editors like Dr. Mallory Brown, JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, continues to be an impactful resource in post-acute and long-term care, geriatrics, and beyond. So please take a look at the May 2022 issue. There's a lot more in it than what we just talked about. Phil and Mallory, thank you so much for spending your time with JAMDA on the go today. Thank you. References for this podcast can be found at www.jamda.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for JAMDA on the go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's A-P-E-X dot P-A-L-T-C dot org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.